people are minimally trained and they have a million other jobs to do, right? They're worried about their own safety. They're worried about the safety of the other people there. And then we haven't even talked about the problem of the jail or the prison itself being what one psychiatrist said to me is, is psychotogenic. It is psychosis inducing. Journalist Elisa Roth investigated these problems and more in the mental health crisis in our courts, our jails, and our prisons. She's the author of Insane, America's Criminal Treatment of Mental Illness, and she shares what she's learned and where to go from here on this episode. Welcome to our podcast, Schizophrenia, Three Moms in the Trenches. From the place where schizophrenia and real life collide. East Coast, West Coast, Middle America. With Miriam Feldman, Mindy Greiling, and Randy Kay. Finally, a place to talk about the truth. This is episode 74. If you are watching on YouTube, you may notice we have two moms and a guest. And that is because Mimi Feldman is in Italy with very shaky internet, but she's on a retreat and we're a little bit jealous, but we waited so long to get tonight's guest that we did not want to postpone. So it's two moms in the trenches and one mom in Italy and a wonderful guest, Elisa Roth, who we will officially introduce in a minute, but she is the author of a book with the same title as tonight's episode, which is insane. America's criminal treatment of mental illness. And since we're here presenting a mom's point of view, we both have our dueling copies. It's also how it affects families. So it it just so happens, Elisa, that you happen to have the two moms who have a little bit of experience from a family point of view with the criminal justice system. Mindy, why don't you just briefly explain? Uh, I think you said you had a a good thing to tell us, but tell us briefly about your criminal justice experience. Jim has been in jail three times, and they thankfully are pretty far in the rear view mirror at this point. Both times he was in jail for, um, you know, two to three days, and then was released. And we never paid paid bail. I never knew why he was released so fast. Sometime, one time he was released in the middle of the night in the winter, and we got a call from him, who thankfully, he had his cell phone. And we had to go retrieve him from the curb right outside the jail. I don't know what he would have done if we hadn't been home. But uh, it's a mixed blessing. I think I've mentioned the story on this podcast before. Once I tried to call and find out how he was doing, and they said, ma'am, this is not a hotel, you know. So there's the communication does not exist in jail uh, for families. But I just want to share a happy note that has nothing to do with Jim ever being in jail that's going on just two days ago. He's doing so well right now, which is I attribute to this podcast because Alisa, we had on this program a guest, uh, Dr. Robert Leitman, who's Mimi's son's psychiatrist. He's now Jim's psychiatrist. He's in New York. We both do him by telehealth and he includes families in the whole thing. But he has just brought Jim back to life on clozapine and treating all the side effects is incredible. So uh, we went to New York uh, last month to go to his picnic. Randy was there. She just drove over from Connecticut. Uh, We got to hug for the first time in our lives and meet each other for the first time. I've still never met Mimi. But that little trip that Jim and I took meant that he wants to fulfill his lifelong dream of getting overseas. He's the only one in our family that's never left the continent. So Two days ago, he applied for a passport. We're going to go over to an island um, next spring, next summer, and he's going to get his dream fulfilled because he's doing so well. So for anybody that's listening who has somebody in jail or worse yet, prison, things can turn around. But Randy's in the thick of it. So Randy, why don't you tell us? Yeah, thank you for that. And and for our listeners, I know sometimes, you know, you you join us on episode 74. So I invite you to go back and check out the episode we did with Dr. Leitman. 
He also has a book on Amazon. Just check the show notes because he is not taking any more patients, but there are listings and information for where you can find similar types of treatment in your state. So I want you to know that that is available. So that's great news. It's always good to have a little hope. Uh, On clozapine, as our listeners know, my son did really, really well and got off social security for a while, but everything went crashing in COVID and the crash continues. For the first time in my life, I am going through, well, my son is going through, but I'm experiencing the ups and downs and unfairness of the criminal justice system. Now, the book we're about to talk about goes deep into extremes and, uh, So we're sort of in just jail being where they are before they're sentenced, prison being where they're sentenced after the trial. Is that right, Elisa? Pretty much. Yeah, she's good. You'll you'll set us straight late. (laughs) So, you know, I will just say that, um, yeah, my son uh, had a court date today, supposedly. This is just a little bit from a family point of view. Okay. I geared everything up. I set aside this morning to show up at court and... Uh, support him. I spoke to the public defender. I did put everything in place that I could, picked up stuff, you know, spoke to her at length, got a copy of the police report, you know, all the things to support from afar that I can. And they changed his court date without telling anybody clerical error. And he ended up going yesterday and the judge saw him for 22 seconds and said, "Uh, I can't decide about jail diversion right now. Put him back in jail. And uh, well, uh, I need letters of character references and uh, we'll see you November 13th. So that's kind of where we are. Um, November 13th. Yep. So, uh, I have to see if I can get a different kind of lawyer. This is what families who try to support go through. So that's all I'm going to say right now. Just know that we're in the throes of, and I called his social worker. I called, I have to, I have to clear his stuff out of the place he was living. And, and they said, this depends on the judge. Depends on what judge you get. This judge didn't want to hear anything except the victim's story. And by the way, this thing is the victim's word against my son's word. He says he didn't do it. I don't know. But anyway, so that's so this is how it is. And I'm about to start teaching a NAMI family to family class. And I was talking to my co-teacher tonight. And he said when his son went to jail that he was, um, the police treated it like a raid. And this was on marijuana possession three years ago. They smashed down their front door, $6,000 worth of damage. They handcuffed everybody in the house. Like it was the whole thing. And for marijuana possession, I'm talking a bag, it was $375,000 or $275,000 bail. Like it was insane anyway, but they're past it. They're over it. But so the stories abound. However, let's bring in an expert. Our guest tonight, Elisa Roth, who Mindy has already met and been on a podcast with, I think when the book first came out, so excited. She is a print and radio journalist. She has reported extensively on criminal justice. Her first book, which is, again, title of tonight's episode, Insane, America's Criminal Treatment of Mental Illness. Oh my God, what a scary thing to read when you're a mother who's got a son in jail, hopefully not facing this, but you never know. Um, she investigated the crisis in our courts and our jails and our prison, and you touch on police, and there's so much that you touch on in this book. New Yorker called it, and rightly so, an essential expose, and the New York Times said it's rife with sharp, brutal details that pulls the reader beyond the realms of abstract policy debates because there are many stories in there. So please, please welcome Elisa Roth. Well, thank you for that lovely introduction. And thank you both for for reading it. I always tell parents if they're going to read this, they can't read it before they go to bed because (laughs) because they're living it. So they don't need (laughs) an an extra dose of it. But thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's so much that there's so much we want to ask you. We have a list of I think 14 questions, but you know, this is a conversation. So if if I could just ask you starting to just describe like one of the worst 
stories in your book, like a really worst example of the treatment of people with mental illness in the hospital and maybe the best, like I know you talked about PACE, a program for accelerated clinical effectiveness. So you went from the worst to the best. Can you give us an example of each and kind of how did you give an extensive history in the book, but briefly, how do you think we got here to where we are? The heart behind the I'm on podcast is storytelling because every mom has a story to tell. I know that when I talk to my friends who are parenting and we share stories, we all end up feeling less alone and more capable of loving our kids well. You can find information everywhere on the internet. Some is bad parenting advice and some is pretty wise. We like to think there's a lot of wisdom on imom.com. And when you combine that signature wisdom with a great story, it brings parenting to life. We want a mom who's listening to see herself and her kids in these stories and rest in the confidence that she is the perfect mom for her kids. Check out the iMom podcast with new episodes every Monday. I hate to compare suffering. Um, I think we could talk about the worst cases all night and not finish. Um, A couple of quick examples. Um, There's a wonderful man that I met in Virginia who um, developmental illness ended up in jail and actually ended up blinding himself, um, which gets me every time I say it. He is a wonderful, wonderful person who I'm happy to report is, is doing quite well, um, living independently and presents often with and to NAMI and to police departments is doing well. So it has a happy-ish ending, um, but it gets me every time. Um, another horrible thing that I've witnessed was the solitary confinement cell in a jail in Oklahoma. Um, and it was solitary confinement because it was suicide watch. Um, and the person was in a cell by himself with a um, with an officer sitting outside the door to make sure he didn't do anything to himself. But I remember, I still remember the, the, the sound and the smell of this cell, which was stuck in a back corner of this jail. And it, it stank so badly from urine, that ammoniac smell that I just remember it burning my nostrils. So, but we could go on. I'm serious that we could go on all night about the awful stories. Unfortunately, I think there are more awful stories than, than good ones. Um, but there are some good ones. Um, I think that the, um, the, the center in, in San Antonio, Texas, that was developed as a, as a sort of a one-stop shop for, for mental illness, um, where police are not just allowed, but expected to bring people with mental illness or who are intoxicated, Um, to this center. There's a special place for them to come in. They come in through a side door, they sit down, they fill out the paperwork and are on their way. And the people can be evaluated. So I sat in on the, um, for lack of a better word, a drying out room where people who are intoxicated could be brought in to just sleep it off. And it was a room full of mats, like you'd see in a kindergarten class or something. And the guys were just sleeping it off. And they, um, there was a substance use counselor who, when they woke up, would sit down and give them a very gentle offer of, if you'd like some treatment, we have it over here. And if you'd like to be on your way, go ahead. Um, and in the same building, they had a place where you could be brought in if you were in the throes of, of a psychotic episode or whatever it was, you could be brought in, admitted for your 72 hours, um, taken care of, and then guided to longer term treatment that suited you. Um, and they really had a whole range and, and still have a whole range of services. So, so a place that you could be directed to long-term treatment, to inpatient, outpatient, um, all sorts of, of things. And so that was reassuring this understanding that, that the police may be the way that you arrive there, but it doesn't need to be the, the end game of, of this interaction. So I have, a, I'm not sure when you came to Minnesota, you know, you know what, an aside here, I just realized 
I'm on this program with two professional radio people. So yikes. <laughs> but but um, I'm the I'm the slug in the group. But uh, Elisa. Oh, yeah, just the know, state legislator. That's all. OK. Yeah. I was interviewed <laughs> by radio people many times, but this is a different site. But um, uh, I'm not sure, Elisa, when you came to Minnesota Public Radio, if this was before or after you got here, but there was a proposal in the Minnesota legislature shortly after I left. So close to, you know, probably eight or eight years ago or so to do something very similar to this. Um, and it was Senator Goodwin who proposed it. I don't, do you recognize this? Anyway, it was opposed by, um, by NAMI uh, Minnesota because the reason was, I believe if I'm correct, it was that they didn't want people coming to a center like this, that the door to the mental health system would be through the police and they would then be in a place where there wasn't medical care in case they had also physical needs too, that uh, there wouldn't be integrated care. And um, so it was not passed. I would have supported it had I been there. Have you run into this dynamic anywhere else around the country? I mean, I think there's always going to be somebody who opposes options, right? And I think that there is this question, should we be brought in by the police? And I think, to me at least, the question is not, should we be brought in by the police? In, a, in an ideal world, no, it's not the police who are, who are bringing people in. But in an ideal world, people are not in a psychotic state on a street corner, right? So if the police are who they're picking them up, then it seems to me that the practical response is to have a place for the police to take them that's, that's not jail. And so I've heard variations on the criticism, you know, the police shouldn't be involved, or we need to take them straight to the hospital, or, you know, various other possibilities. To me, the, the San Antonio model is at least one plausible way of handling it. It was interesting when I met um, Judge Leifman down in, in Florida, that he said he's sort of come to it from the opposite end of things, he started on the court end and has moved towards the, the figuring out where people need to go. But he's also moved towards a sort of one-stop shop model. So it's definitely out there and, and being talked about and, and proposed. Judge Leifman is somebody we have talked about. We actually haven't even had him on here, Randy. We have well, him we on our list it. and we have on such a long list, we never have gotten to him. So we need to do that to hear about his program, because as you wrote in your book, he was able to close one of the two Miami-Dade jails. And now um, there's a lot less people in jail and a lot more people that are getting help. So he went to the one-stop shopping. Interesting. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it is so helpful to know, even at the beginning of our conversation, that there are some solutions or or adaptations of what's happening that that does seem to help and i think we can agree there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle elisa right it's you know um you go into the the history of deinstitutionalization which we've talked about before and when medication came in people were supposed to go to community centers and that never got funded and it has to do with medicaid and medicare and you know all that stuff but it's pretty well known that many people with mental illness wind up on the street. You know, that's one thing I would like Elisa to talk about, because we have said on this program, and some of our guests have, that it's the same people, it's the same number that were in state hospitals, now they're on the street or the jails or the prisons. And I have actually never read anywhere, except in your book, Insane, that that is not really a totally accurate picture. So I think I you should take some time to explain why you say that in your book. I think it's important. Well, let's start with the, the myth piece of it. Um, I think part of the, the confusion is that, that it looks, when you draw a graph of the population, it looks like they should have switched places. Um, and I'm gonna, it's just gonna look backwards when I show it to you on the screen, but basically if we look at the deinstitutionalization starting in 1950 or 55, I can't remember what the, the height is, somewhere in there, and we look at it over the next 50 years, let's say it goes down like this, 
And starting in 1970-ish, you look at the population in jails and prisons and it goes up like that. And so it makes this nice X and you think, oh, well, we've just switched things. And oh, by the way, we have this huge population of people with mental illness in our jails and prisons. So clearly we've just traded places. And the problem is, is that when you start taking it apart, it doesn't let me let me say one more thing. When you when you look at it that way, it it looks like it's this really easy problem with an e really easy solution, right? We let all the people out of the jails and prisons. They couldn't get mental health care. They're out on the streets. They're doing bad things because of their illness. They end up in jail and prison. Boom! Here's our problem. And so then the obvious solution there is that we we provide the the institutions for for people to get their mental health care and we're not going to have this problem anymore right okay so then now we've we've set up our problem and, and this myth let's let's deconstruct it for starters even if we look at the the height of institutionalization the majority of people with mental illness were not living in institutions so that's problem number one. The vast majority of people, even back in 1950 or 55, were living in the community. Um, so then the, the next piece of the problem is when we look at the population, the people who were in those institutions were largely elderly. They had, or at least like middle-aged to elderly, they were largely diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, and there was a mix of men and women the way we have in the community. If we look at the population of jails and prisons, as we all know, the vast majority are young, they're male, and they're not white. So, and I think I may have forgotten to say that in my, my characteristics of people who are in the institutions, they were largely white. Yeah. So, so when we look at the jails and prisons, it's a completely different population. So numerically, it all looks beautiful on paper, but when we actually break down who's there, it, it just doesn't add up. Yeah, that that that's a very good point. Uh, it, you mention also a lot, that, for instance, I called this morning, finally found who my son's counselor is and you know, I, I am finding that the, the, this is all new to me, but people are very nice. I mean, they're human beings working in, in the prison system. So if you're nice to them, they are generally nice to you. Um, and so I did reach my son's counselor and I didn't start by complaining, why haven't I spoken to you before? Because that would have gotten me nowhere. But when I mentioned to now my son's been there five weeks waiting the first court date, and now it's six more weeks awaiting the second court date. And I said to the counselor, um, do you know that my son has schizophrenia? Oh, no, I didn't know that. Now, he has to have an injection once a month, and they have given him the injection, but the counselor has no idea that he has a diagnosis. So I was able to say to him, and I'm in, in case you're new to us, I'm conservator as well. So I have, I, you always have the right to give information, but I have the right to get it as well. And I said, so when it comes time for his injection, I just want you to be aware you might see him fighting a little harder to focus. That's a gentle way to put it. So he said, thank you for telling me. I would not have known that otherwise. So I'm wondering why, you know, why he didn't know he's not a guard, he's a counselor. And you make the point in your book that a lot of the people who are guards or whatever they call them, depending on the system they're in, they end up having to be counselors and they're not trained for that. Some of them are very well-meaning too. It's not, it's not the cliche of terrible guards and the poor prisoner. Some of them really want to help, but they don't know how to help. They're not, they're not, trained to identify mental illness. They're not trained to help with mental illness. You know, can you speak to that? And, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering if information from families could be of any use or getting the background of a, you know, I know it's, I know it's jail and it's not a hospital, but it's the same problem. We have even- Or a hotel. Yeah, or, or a hotel. hotel. <laughs> it's not a hotel. It's That's a, a big, question. messy, messy problem. Um, 
So let's separate it into two pieces. I think that the counselor piece, presumably he is a trained mental health professional. I don't know what level of education, but a trained mental health professional. And were I in that person's position, I would want all the information I could get, right? I would want to know that there was a diagnosis. I would want the family history. I would want to be able to talk to the mom, whether she's the conservator or not, because I would want all the information. Because if you put yourself in the position of that police officer or that corrections officer who's who's bringing the person into the jail or taking care of them in the jail, you're starting from not just zero, you're starting from like negative information. You have a person who's coming in, who's behaving perhaps erratically or strangely, but you have no idea. Is this how he always acts? Is he drunk? Is he high? If he's high, what is he high on? Does he have mental illness? Does he have diabetes and he has low blood sugar, which by the way, could also present that way. There's any number of scenarios that you could be dealing with and you have no idea. So do would I want all that information? Absolutely. But for a variety of reasons, there's the legal reasons, there's the the person realizing that he, you know, that that officer realizing that he needs the information. There's that officer not knowing how to contact the family member. There, there's a lot of reasons why they might not have that information. So, so it makes the job very, very difficult. And certainly all these things like HIPAA make it even more complicated because he can't call you up and ask you. I mean, in your case, he could, but in, in most cases, he can't. Mm-hmm. And I think just a little, by the way, is that I think that the misunderstanding of HIPAA makes things so unbelievably complicated because, because understanding who really isn't allowed to say anything and who just thinks they shouldn't and doesn't want to get in trouble for saying the wrong thing makes things very, very complicated. So there's, there's the counselor piece of it. And then if we switch over just to the straight corrections officer problem, it gets a thousand times more complicated. This is a person who is trained as a law enforcement officer. Their primary job is as a law enforcement officer. The training in mental health and mental illness is at best minimal. Mm -hmm. Um, There are people who have gone through CIT training. There's all sorts of training that's out there. But even so, when you look at the absolute amount of time that people are spending in training and what that, you know, how much of that training is mental health versus something else, people are minimally trained. And they have a million other jobs to do, right? They're worried about their own safety. They're worried about the safety of the other people there. And then we haven't even talked about the problem of the jail or the prison itself being what one psychiatrist said to me is is psychotogenic. It is psychosis inducing. Um, I don't know if either of you have ever been inside jails, whether visiting or, or touring or anything else. It is legislators get in jail. So I've certainly been in jail. So you know what it's, it's, it is the most disorienting, disconcerting space that I have ever been in. There's no windows or the windows are tiny. So you can't tell what time it is. It's noisy. The lights are on all the time. Um, Sometimes they turn them off at night. Sometimes they don't. Um, You have people who are sometimes acting incredibly erratically around you. And even when they're not, it's just noisy. There's a lot of yelling. Um, Often the way that the the schedule works, which you as a detainee have absolutely no control over, is that you might be woken up at four o'clock in the morning for your your pill call. You might be given breakfast at three o'clock in the morning because that's when we serve meals, you know? Um, You may not go outside. Randy, has your son gotten to go out at all? Yeah, he so he's in a minimal security. He's got where he is right now, 110 people with a big wall in the middle, he says. So there's 55 people. He's in the top bunk. It's near the TV. So that's good if the football game is on, but it's not good if it's three o'clock in the morning and someone's watching TV. So the you know, he's starting to explain some of these things. I have to say that as 
coming from where he was, which he had spiraled from really being very, very productive to to a pot addiction and um, a, a housing situation that was he had graduated to an un, basically unsupervised housing situation. Um, and he was bored. He couldn't get work. His appearance looked even the police report said that, you know, he looked homeless. So and, and this is someone who spends a lot of money on clothing that he doesn't wear. But anyway, um, he doesn't like to be told what to do all, all the time. But I think there's a part of him that's enjoying the structure there, there is a, there's one story in your book about someone, the recidivism rate who just like wanted, got out and wanted to get back in and says, can I have my old room back? Mm-hmm. And I will, I will say that Jim absolutely hated jail. He was the quintessential person with schizophrenia who totally deteriorated in jail. Mm-hmm. He was once in only for overnight because we had to do that to facilitate some hearings coming up faster. You could get a hearing if you're coming out of jail really fast, but if you were in the community, you'd had to wait weeks to get one. So he just spent a Can I pause for a minute just to say how utterly mind-blowing it is that to get somebody a hearing, you have to send them to jail? I mean- I know, yeah, thank you for, I thought so too. I've been so uh, beaten down. I kind of forget to be astounded. No, but we're used to it. The, the thing yeah. is that families are used to it. We're used to, um, oh, you know, I mean, sometimes the system works for us. I got conservatorship of my son. And I was told in his first hospitalization ever that if I applied, then they couldn't discharge him. So yay, that was good for me. It gave him more time in the hospital, but there's so many ins and outs to the to the system in general. But yes, there is, you know, my my son- you know, I, what he did says he didn't do very, very small, but it looks big. And the original bail was like a hundred thousand for someone who's never had a criminal record, never been violent a day in his life, had nothing but speeding tickets in the computer, but it's just, they look at him and they go, oh, he's dangerous just because his teeth are now black from his meds. And if it gets close to the time when he needs, you know, he has that vacant look in his eye. And so the treatment, the appearance is part of the treatment. But yes, I agree. Oh, we'll get you a hearing faster if they're in trouble. It's like, it's the same mentality that's like, oh, we can't get them in the hospital unless they're a clear danger to themselves or others. And then you have Senator Cray Deeds, who couldn't get, again, another story from your book, that you know he couldn't get his son into a bed, even though the son wanted a bed, and he ended up getting stabbed. You know, so there's all stories of it has to be terrible, terrible, terrible before any help can be can be given. So yes, I understand from my son's experience, and I know every state is different. He was put in lockdown for a week. He didn't like that, but after a week, which Jim never got to, he got to go to. I'm just calling it the dorm. I don't know what else to call it. You know, he's got a top bunk, and you know where he is right now. The they get 20 minutes to eat instead of 10, and and he's playing cards. He has more people to talk to. My, I have a fear that he's going to like it there. I mean, well, I was going to say to contrast. So Jim hated it. That one night that he was there, he was a coherent, rational person. And the next morning when he was in the hearing, he didn't even notice I was there. And I picked him up later. He was totally decompensated just in one day. To contrast that, his girlfriend, who, by the way, is currently in jail. I wrote about her in the book for people who have read it. I called her Colleen. And she's the one that got Jim into lots of trouble. She loves it in jail. I almost think that she's there now because she's lonely in her apartment. She's lost her car. She has no structure in her life. And she's a totally different person than Jim. But I think, Randy, when you say somebody might enjoy it there, everything is relative in life. And for her, there is a community there. She's a social person. She's not a a person who gets worn out by being in jail, like, yeah. like Jim. But I think uh, for people with schizophrenia, there's a lot of people who get worn out in jail. And, and there's and, nothing really you know, fun about it. 
It, and and again, this is pre-trial holding. It's not like a two-year prison sentence, which could be an entirely different prison. So we've been chatting and almost leaving Elisa out of the situation. Um, but you know, as I said, it's a conversation here. We haven't mentioned um, the statistics, which uh, your book's been out about five years, right? And a, and a recent edition came out in 2020, I think. Yeah. Um, so can you, in case people don't know, can you share some of the statistics, like what percentage of people in the nation's criminal justice system have a diagnosed mental illness? I will tell you numbers and then you're going to have to check me because I have not written my numbers down. I'm not a brilliant numbers person. Okay. We can do ish. We can do ish. Um, I think in the criminal justice system, the numbers are something like 50% of people have a diagnosed or diagnosable mental illness. Um, It's higher if you're looking at um, specific portions of the population. So among women, for example, it's quite a bit higher. Um, I think where it gets very messy is, well, there's a couple of places where it gets messy. I keep using that word because this is a messy problem. Um, One is that we see a lot of places that aren't looking, I think maybe a little bit like where your son is. Um, So if if you don't ask the question, then you're not going to see the problem. So Alabama got in trouble um, because the the people that they were using to do the the mental health intake for their prisoners, this was at the state level. I don't know what was happening at the jails there, but the state level, um, they just weren't trained to to realize it. So they're they're really under diagnosing. Mm. Um, I think the other question is is when you start getting into um, how do we define mental illness? So different states and different jurisdictions will use different criteria. Um, so schizophrenia is an obvious, not a question there, but when we get into things like PTSD or anxiety, um, some places will count it and some places won't. Um, so so it's hard to get a, a precise handle on it. Um, but I think we can safely say that a large number of people in our criminal justice system have a mental illness um, and a large proportion of people. Um, one thing we saw during COVID was that the numbers of people in jail and prison went down quite a bit. Um, but actually the percentages of people with mental illness went up. So it's interesting. Yeah. One thing I would, that's kind of related to that, that I would like to ask you about, um, you know, you know, in Minnesota, we had the 48 hour rule. So if you're deemed incompetent to stand trial, you in two days, you're supposed to be out to a therapeutic setting. And that isn't working so well because there's not room for the next place to go. And then because the jail people and the prison people propose prison, you know, people that are there waiting to stand trial, they're taking up all the space. So that causes a stack up in the hospitals. I was interested in your book that it's not just Minnesota, that there's other states that are doing this as well. And I'm wondering the ones that end up coming from jail to get to the therapeutic sessions, do you think they are as sick as the ones waiting in the hospital to get there? And then a corollary in Minnesota, because it's not working, only felons can get from the jail if they're deemed incompetent, but the others are still have to stay in jail, like Randy's son, with lesser charges. I think those could be the people with the more serious mental illnesses. They're not as put together to be committing felonies as much as they are to be doing lower level crimes. So could you comment on that whole thing? I mean, this, I think that, Maybe if we take a step back, the the one of the key points here that I don't think we talk about enough is that that we separate the criminal justice system and our mental health care system, and we forget that they're really intertwined. Um, particularly when we start looking at a population that doesn't have private health insurance, so they're dependent on the state systems. Um, 
we're really looking at the same people and it depends what day it is or what month it is or what year it is, which side are they in as civilians or are they in as, as prisoners? Um, but to try to separate it out gets, gets tricky. Um, I do know that this is a tremendous problem nationally. I was at a conference this summer of, um, and talking to, to people who work in the state systems and it is literally everywhere that the that the um the criminal justice population is sort of taking over all of the beds in the state systems and everybody's trying desperately to figure out what to do about it and and families are starting to pray please let the police pick my son up so he can go to jail so he can get some help which is again mind-blowing to me that that's yeah. how we deal with it and i think it speaks to this much much larger question is is what should our mental health care system look like so that we're we're preventing people from getting to to the forensic patient level before it becomes an issue and i and i realize that that's the you know it's not the million dollar problem it's the like multi-billion dollar problem but but I think we spend all this time trying to figure out how do we get one more bed, one more bed. And really we need to be thinking about how do we blow up this whole system and, and create something that actually, that actually works at a systemic level. That would, that would be the dream. So I also want to leave some space at the end to talk about the response to your book and also the new book that you're working on. But so we've talked a lot about the problem, not enough. There's so much to share. What do you think, other than blowing up the system? <laughs> what, what, do you, <laughs> what do you think are some steps that you've seen work that we could take that could make a difference? And, you know, again, you you initially wrote the book over five years ago and and a new edition came out and you had some response. What, what does the solution look like or what do parts of the solution look like? And while you're answering that, could you comment on our mental health courts, part of the solution or not? So many uh, states have don't have them or they have them, but very few people get in. I really do think that in some ways in a nonviolent sort of way that blowing up the system and, and starting over is the way like where we need to be going to like a mental health system abolitionist movement or something um count me in that's it yeah me too it, uh, sign me up it, it just feels like we're we have this to use two sort of lousy metaphors but we've got like this patchwork band-aid solution right and it's very very responsive and trying to fix the solution you know fix a problem after it's already happened rather than than preempt the problem and i think that's very much how we deal with with mental illness in this country is again you have to be sick enough to get the treatment we we don't have the space to see you so we're not going to see you until you're very sick but you know it's the 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 mental health equivalent of telling the guy who's 500 pounds and eating cheeseburgers three times a day and smoking two packs of cigarettes and never exercising to come back when he's had his heart attack, right? Like, let's, let's talk about how we might avoid the heart attack rather than, than dealing with it when it happens. Great um, analogy. That said, I think that along the way, there are certainly things that we can do, starting with acknowledging that that we need to separate the mental illness from the criminal justice, that the criminal justice response is not the answer to the, the mental health problem. So what does that mean? That means having a place like in San Antonio where a police can bring somebody and doesn't need to arrest them because there's no place else to take them. Um, I think it's something like what we have in Florida where we say, we're not gonna put you through the whole criminal justice system. We have an alternative system that if you do the things that you need to do, we can move you along. We can get you where you need to go and, and put you on your way. Um, I think that mental health courts can be 
a piece of that um, with some caveats, starting with what you talk about, which is that there are very few of them and they're very hard to get into. They are extremely time intensive. They're extremely labor intensive. And the way that the vast majority, at least that I've seen are set up, they're very limited in who they're willing to take. Um, so it's fine for the very low level person that we could say are not even criminals. We could have a whole other conversation about what, you know, how do we define criminal, but, but, you know, somebody who's doing something with substances, dealing or having or using, or somebody who's stealing things or sleeping in places they shouldn't be sleeping. Um, but they're they're less interested in people who commit violent crimes. And again, I think we can have you know an air quote conversation about what, how do we define a, a violent crime. I think one of the things that's complicated is that as the criminal justice system has expanded, we've expanded the number of charges that exist and how those can be set up. And so, what is a violent crime? And having that as a as a as something that keeps you out of those mental health courts. Um, you know, narrows your your field. And I think one of the things that that people say about the mental health courts is, are these people who might be okay anyway, right? Do they have the support system that they need anyway? I look at the two of you and I know that your kids, however they're doing right this minute, have these very powerful support systems and support systems with resources, whether financial or emotional, or even just a couch to sleep on, um, maybe they don't have to be put into the mental health court, or maybe they do, but we need to expand it to include the people who don't have those resources. I'm going to push back on that. I am a very, very, very privileged white middle-class woman, and my son uh, was in mental health court, and he needed it. Here's why. Because if he wasn't in court, he wasn't going to follow recommendations. And I'm not a conservator or a guardian. So I, privileged as I am, supportive as we are, resources that we have, the mental health system doesn't allow us to help if he has anosognosia and won't accept help. And then I want to get in one more question because I see the time is fleeting that's related to this. You state in your book that since the changes of the 1970s, many cite the barriers to involuntary commitment is one of the reasons for the increased criminalization of mental illness. And that plays into no matter how privileged you are, these laws bar us from helping. So what can you say about that? I mean, I think that the involuntary commitment along with the involuntary medication is you know, a landmine question. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> I think, and I say this, I should should say this as somebody who has never been involuntarily medicated or committed and never had to involuntarily commit or medicate somebody. So I have talked to a lot of people who've been in those positions and I've talked to the people who make the decisions, but I don't have personal experience with it. I think that mental illness, I don't have to tell you and your listeners, is is tricky and complicated. And if by nature it is tricky to diagnose, right? We can't do a blood test and maybe we can do a brain scan, but it's not a quick done in the ER scan to say, oh yes, you do have this and this is why you're not responding properly. Um, and it, by definition, messes with your head, right? It makes you think differently, let's say. So I would like to think that were I in that position, I would like somebody who I trusted to make a decision for me in the same way that if I keeled over on the street and my husband had to decide whether I should be rushed to the hospital or not, I would like somebody to make that decision and I would like somebody to have the ability to make that decision. But we also have a long complicated history of people being involuntarily medicated or involuntarily committed um, 
literally against their will and for all sorts of wrong reasons. And so how do we negotiate those laws and maybe renegotiate those laws to say, you know, who gets to make that decision? Um, I, I do think it plays into it because I've talked to so many people who say, if only I could have forced my child into treatment before it reached this point, we could have avoided this. Um, and I think the question is, how do we rewrite those laws to adjust a little bit to say, well, we can't do it because we don't like that guy that you're dating, but we can do it because you're clearly not making making sense and not thinking right. And I think, you know, the power of attorney that I think you briefly mentioned at one point, Randy, or the Signing uh, the conservatorship or about uh, not necessarily a medical power of attorney, but uh, a release of information. Or yeah. even I've heard from a lot of parents now when we're talking about college age kids and they're going off to college and they're encouraging parents and, and the kids to sign a if I need the information or if I need to make a decision. So it's not a full conservatorship, it's sort of an acknowledgement that a right. 19 year old is not full grown, ready to make a decision, or maybe if they right. need a you know help. So I think that there are ways to navigate it, but I do think that it's it's coming back to your to your original question, Mindy. I do think it has complicated things because because the hands are tied and the hands are tied all the way through. And yet here's a person who by definition is not really able to make a rational decision about what's happening to him. Yeah. I, I'd say, you know, they, there are many elephants in this room. One of them is what we mentioned before that people with illnesses like our son, schizophrenia, often don't know they have it. And so they're not going, oh yes, I have cancer. Please give me the chemo. Like, and not that people with cancer are that joyous about it, but you know what I'm saying? They're not saying, yes, please, please help me. They're saying, no, you're crazy. I don't have this. I, you know, there's nothing to do with anything. And regarding privilege, we are very supportive, but I'm not going to allow my son on my couch right now. He, I don't trust him. I love him, but I don't trust him. I have grandchildren. I don't want him around them unless I would like to say, hey, 90 meetings in 90 days, then we'll talk. So, it, you know, no matter how much I love him and support him, I have boundaries because I have other people that I love and are including myself that I am protecting right now. Uh, there's a part- As of you me, should. Yes. And you, you know, should. There, there are boundaries to support. Financial, um, there's- emotional support he'll always have, but financial and practical support, there are boundaries because as there should be, it will be more powerful for my son and any mother of someone who's having a substance abuse problem, any relative any of anyone will say, I can't talk them into it. They have to want it. So I asked the counselor if he would please let my son know that they're starting NA meetings in prison and that it will look good so that he can get jail diversion to a mental health, you know, if he goes. And even, you know, my son said to me on the phone today, you know, I'm leaning 60, 40 towards sobriety. Like I get it. I wrecked my life, but I like to smoke. <laughs> so, so I said, I have one question for you, Randy. I was wondering at the beginning, but I didn't answer it at that time or ask it, but do you think your son has told, do you think the counselor in the jail asked him if he has a mental illness and he said he didn't, or do you think he just didn't ask him? I think, I he, wondered didn't, about, I think he didn't ask him. This is the first time I've spoken ask. to the counselor. He said, oh, I wasn't okay. aware. So, okay. um, you know, so, you know, it, it does, it does get complicated and, you know, our sons are in their forties, my son's 41. So it, it's a point where I can't convince him he has schizophrenia. I can't convince him to get sober. I hope that he will come to that decision. But I think if he hangs around the kind of people, like if he could get a sponsor, like this is what I hang on to, that there are other there are other hooks to hang your hat on. So, you know, there are there are limits even to support. So um, we haven't quite solved it, but I, I would like to know the effect that your book has had on people. What has the response been? Um, is there a little more hope now? Are people working on things? And what's your next book? I think my big hope is that, if I dare say this, the silver lining of the pandemic has been that I think that mental health 
is something that people are paying attention to. And I think that we still don't spend enough time focusing on serious mental illness. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We won't get any arguments here. (laughs) But I do think that if we can open up that conversation about mental health and mental illness at all, we're moving in the right direction. And I think that I open the paper every day and see a story about the mental health crisis. And even if it's not a crisis at this level, if it's a crisis at this level, that's an acknowledgement that that we have a problem. So that I am hopeful. I am hopeful that I think that the criminal justice, I mean, I'm hopeful even, even from back when I was reporting the book, that it is a place where I feel like all the sides agree that this is a problem. So you can talk to the police officer who has no patience for the, the person with mental illness who's standing on the corner or screaming at the stop sign, but he understands that it's a problem and it's an unacceptable problem. And that corrections officer who doesn't want anything to do with it or doesn't want to know also thinks it's an unacceptable problem, as does the judge and the lawyers and the family members, of course. Um, so I am hopeful that that if we all agree, there's nobody out there saying, yeah, this is this is exactly where they belong, lock them up, right? Nobody's saying that. So I'm hopeful that that it may take us another 50 or 100 years to get there, but at least we're all sort of moving in in the, the right direction. Okay. Um, I, I would just add that I, if, this is totally from my perspective, but I wish that if someone is currently on medication and appears okay, that there was some more background. If the judge yesterday had said, what's the background of this kid? Oh, he's been living in a group home and Oh, wait, let me cut him some slack here. Like it was just 22 seconds. No, no, no. You look weird. I'm not going to listen to you. There's stigma. There's stigma in the courtrooms and there's stigma in the prisons. And it depends on who, you know, again, in your book, from incredibly kind prison workers to people who have no clue what it's like to hear voices. So education, I think, could help in the meantime as well. I think and I, no I like to call it uh, I like to call it discrimination um, because I think there's if a person has a lower level mental illness, maybe there's more working with them to get something to happen. But when they look really weird or they're in the uh, psych ward and they're obnoxious or you know doing really bizarre things, there is research to show they don't get as much time or attention. So I think um, we have a long ways to go for uh, people with serious mental illnesses. But having said that, I will just add this one. Can I pause for one second and interrupt? I I have to say to come back to what I said earlier about the privileges, even just the way that they look, I'm assuming Randy, that your son is a white 40 year old. Yes. And that he walks in there and and looks disheveled and is already treated poorly. And you imagine that if he were not white, the outcome might have been very, very different. Might have been and worse. Again, on the, it might have been the, worse. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Worse. No, that's what I mean. And yeah. on the, the support piece, even if you say, we're not in a place for you to be sleeping on my couch, the fact that you were ready to be there and to be calling that counselor and are able to take the time and the space to do that is a huge amount of privilege. And so the number of people that I've talked to, both who have the supportive parents, I've said all along that the the unsung heroes and heroines of this story are the parents and particularly the mothers for sure. Um, There are many, many people who don't have any of that support and so are left to show up in their their jail scrubs. And, and, you know, if you had been able to be there, here is this nicely dressed, well-spoken, supportive person who is showing up there that that puts points on, on his side, right? Huge privilege with that regard. The little tidbit I was going to say is um, I have experienced, and I've had many, many families tell me that, piggybacking now, Randy said earlier, that they get often we get treated better by the people in the courts, the people in the jails, and people in prison than in the mental health system. Um, I, I think that's a 
condemning statement, but there's, you know, I've had people in the criminal justice side pat me on the back, you know, give you encouraging words. I don't get that, uh, generally speaking, in the mental health system. Interesting. Well, you've certainly um, done so much to shine a light on this problem. I would like to ask you if there's anything you were hoping we would ask you that we didn't ask you that you really want to say, I want you to say it and then tell us about your next book. I think you've asked all the right questions. So I appreciate the chance to answer them. Um, and the next book is looking at the incarceration of women. They Women are the fastest growing group of incarcerated people. Um, and so I'm looking to understand why that is and, and what that means for those women and for their, for their families and for us as a society. Wow. I can't wait for it to come out. And I think your book, because of the statistics that you already cited that are in your first book, will shine a light on serious mental illnesses because so many more women who end up in prison, you said, have a mental illness than, than the men. And so I think they have to be quite sick before they end up in prison. So your topic, we'll have to definitely have you back and hear more about that. Okay. Well, I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. And where can people get in touch with you or find out more about the book? Books? Do you have a website? Um, I've sort of stepped back from Twitter, but I am still there. Um, Haven't we all, but okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, obviously the books are in bookstores and they're on Amazon. Do you have a website yourself or? I do. It is not kept up, but I can be reached through there. It's alisaroth.com. Or if you Google me, you'll, you'll find me. Google her. You'll find it. All right. Alisa, thank you so, so much for, for joining us today and for all the work that you do. Thank you both for having me. I really appreciate it. It was really fun. Hey, thanks for joining us for this episode of Schizophrenia, Three Moms in the Trenches with Randy Kay, Mindy Greiling, and Miriam Feldman. To get in touch with us or to learn more about our books, please visit our websites at miriam-feldman.com, mindygreiling.com, or randyk.com.